Welcome to The Mixtape with Scott, a podcast devoted to learning the personal stories of living economists and some uh, outside economics with the hope that these stories inspire you and resonate with you and are meaningful to you. And with the other additional hope that if we just listen to a bunch of stories over time, we'll have in aggregate, maybe like a bit of the overall picture or the broader collective story of the economics profession itself. I am Scott Cunningham, the, the host. This week's guest is a buddy of mine down the road from me at Texas A&M, Jonathan Meir. Uh, he has a super long title, uh, so I'm going to let him tell you that title. I, I couldn't in a million years get it right without a piece of paper. John and I have known each other, I think, for over 10 years. Uh, he came to Texas in 2009. I came to Texas in 2007, and neither one of us have left. And we always seem to at the uh, end up at the same conferences and, and always end up hanging out. He's a person that uh, always makes me laugh and always makes me think. Uh, he's just a genuinely fun person to be around. He's a person that writes in applied areas, uh, as well as uh, more specifically in applied areas, very traditional fields like labor economics, which is very close to my heart, and public economics. And he writes in very novel areas kind of within those uh, like charitable giving, as well as more established areas like um, education and the minimum wage. In this interview, though, we just talked a lot about his thoughts um, about being an economist and what it's meant to him and how he got into it and how he sort of knew from a really early age that this is what he wanted to do, making him sort of a unique person that I've ever met. Uh, he talks a lot about the good luck that he's had, uh, a theme that has happened uh, in other people that I've spoken with. Um, and really what he loves about economics uh, is just the people. So thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the interview. And if you like it, please share it with somebody, uh, share it with your friends, share it with your enemy so that the, they'll be so moved by Jonathan's uh, story that they apologize to you for not giving back the lawnmower or for, uh, you know, uh, doing some other horrible thing to you. So uh, consider supporting the podcast, though. Uh, it's a labor of love, and I, I do hope you love it, though, even if you uh, even if you don't support it. So I hope that it means a lot to you. Thanks a lot. Well, it is my pleasure to have uh, a uh, one of my uh, not to embarrass him, but one of my 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 favorite people uh, in the profession, uh, Dr. Jonathan Meir. Jonathan, good to have you on the podcast. Yeah, glad to be here, Scott. Before we get started, tell me your, for the sake of the listener, tell me your, your name, your job title, and uh, the, the monopsonist that pays your paycheck. <laughs> so uh, my name is Jonathan Meir. Uh, I am the Mary Julian George R. Jordan Professor of Public Policy at uh, the Department of Economics at Texas A&M, where I'm also the Director of Undergraduate Programs and at the moment, the Director of Engagement and Outreach in our department. That sounds like a made-up title. <laughs> well, I did, I did, I did make it up. Yeah, <laughs> not okay. the position though. The title's made up. The title's made up. Okay. All right. So here's an icebreaker. Um, I'm asking you this because you love to have dinner parties. Uh, so if you could host a dinner party uh, with any three people, living, dead, or fictional, you and your wife, uh, who would you invite and why? And then I said, remember. Milton Friedman once said he'd invite Galbraith and Keynes, despite their <laughs> ideological differences. So who are you going to have at your, your party and why? 
What do oh, you Oscar Wilde for sure. Uh, yeah. I, I think I think that's probably that's probably the easiest one. Um, that that's certainly the first one that leapt to mind. I'm trying to think. You know, I don't I don't don't want to get uh, too maudlin and, and pick you know a relative who I don't get to see anymore. But uh, but definitely definitely have Oscar. Actually, you know what? Oscar Wilde might be enough uh, by himself <laughs> to to carry the entire conversation. Um, I think uh, I think maybe Richard Feynman. Um, you know that that and that watching the two of them play off each other would probably be pretty pretty fun. Uh, so you can tell I'm I'm going for people who are not just incredibly smart but also wildly entertaining. Yeah. Uh, and so let's see who else who else really fits that mold. Um, I'm tempted to say you, Scott. Uh, you want me there? Uh, yeah, I think I think uh, I think you'd round out that that group pretty well. Um, no, let's see. So Feynman, Wild. And, uh, huh. Hmm. That is, uh, that's true. You know what? Let's, we'll stop with five. All right. I think that's, that's, that's an, I'm not going to get a word in edgewise. And you, you've known me long enough to know that that's, uh, uh, that's quite a feat. Yeah. Why, why do you, why do you throw so many parties? So to, why have you always been like that? What, what do you love about doing that? I just, I really enjoy being around people. Um, I enjoy uh, chatting with people. I have, uh, so, so you said dinner parties. I, I really throw more cocktail parties than anything right. else. Uh, right. Though I do like, I do like cooking. Um, it's also, it's easier to have a big crowd if you're making drinks. And I bring the same unhealthy obsession for detail to uh, cocktail creation that I do to everything else. Uh, I think it's, it's fun to get the people I like together and, and have them interact and, uh, my parties tend to have a really mixed bag of, of folks from just different parts of my life. And mm. many of them become friends in their own right, which is, which is really enjoyable for me to see. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, uh, you're, you're sort of a, a gatherer type. You sort of bring a lot of people together. Um, so let me, let me, let's start at the beginning. So can you tell me a little bit about your early life? Where you, where'd you grow up? What kind of kid were you? Uh, so I was born in Israel, uh, and oh. I was a really annoying kid. Uh, but so my parents moved from Romania to Israel in 1979, just before I was born. Oh. Um, my father was a PhD student in electrical engineering at the Technion in Haifa. Uh, and so my parents sacrificed a ton to uh, leave Romania. And then in 1986, when I was six years old, we moved to uh, the U.S., which is where my sister was born. My mom likes to joke that she smuggled kids into two countries. Um, <laughs> and so, again, my parents, you know, sacrificed a ton. And that's something I think you and I have in common, that that we care about parenting quite a bit. And I think one of the things you don't realize until you have your own children is just how much your parents did for you. So mm. I'm incredibly appreciative of that. So we, we lived in Maryland where my, my dad was at the University of Maryland until I was about 12. And then we moved to New Jersey. My dad is now emeritus, distinct, distinguished professor emeritus of electrical engineering uh, at Rutgers. And so mm. my parents uh, still live in New Jersey. So I, I mostly grew, I'd, I'd say I spent my formative years in New Jersey. Oh, okay. Okay. What, wait, what town is Rutgers in? So Rutgers is in, well, it's in New Brunswick, Piscataway. It's kind of scattered, but but I grew up in East Brunswick. East Brunswick. Is that a big area? Was it like a small town or what was it like? 
It's uh, it's suburban. It's it's central Jersey. Central Jersey is kind of its its own thing, and it's just a lot of suburban sprawl. But it's a really mm-hmm. good place to grow up. Um, it's a fantastic school district, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's sort of an interesting story, especially and I think dovetails with my interest in uh, education and something again you know you don't realize until you get out there and you're studying this stuff yourself. So uh, in New Jersey, each town is its own school district, which is kind of similar to Texas, but not like other states. And um, my sense is that. A combination of families moving in that really valued education, whether it was um, Jewish families leaving um, New York City in the 70s and early 80s, uh, South and East Asian families moving in in the in the 80s, 90s and 2000s. There's just a lot of demand from parents for high quality education. You get a really good peer group. And I think the school combination of of luck and good management got a really good draw of very high quality teachers who maintained a really um powerful ethos of of high quality and so mm-hmm. you know it's sort of hard to to chop up what you know what drives what exactly in that education production function but you know i had so many amazing, um, amazing peers, and we all, you know, pushed each other, but not in, not in, you know, sort of a nasty competitive way. It was just there was extremely high standards. There were dozens of kids who went to top schools. You know, this is one town in New Jersey sending um, two kids to Stanford. I think one to Berkeley, two or two to Harvard, two to MIT, uh, mm. out of one cohort. You know, uh, wow. and so uh, you had maybe three dozen students out of a class of 500 going to, you know, the, the just the absolute top universities. Um, and so it, that was something that I, again, I didn't appreciate until much later. You, you it's sort of the, the narcissism of being young, right? You think that everything, uh, everything in your experience is the way that everyone's experiencing it. Right. 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 Wow. That's really cool. That's, and that's been that, that school sort of has always been that way. Um, certainly in my, in, in my time and, and even now, um, uh, it's, it's just a really high quality school. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. You said that, that it was a lot of it also was peers because you, we just mentioned how much you enjoy. So you enjoy bringing people together. Have you always been like that? You always loved your friends, had friends and loved them. I, I I'd say so. I mean, I think I'm, um, you know, we all change as we grow older. Uh, I think that I am more comfortable now uh, kind of guiding things. Um, I, you know, it, by the very low standards of academic economists, I'm not particularly dorky. Um, and and I'm, I'm certainly far less dorky now than I was when I was, you know, a, a teenager, which, you know, was was pretty bad. <laughs> well, what kind of kid were you in high school? Were you always, were you, you said you were super academic but but outside academics what kind of kid were you um well so so i was on the swim team though um not very good and that was that was true in in college also um and um you know i think that i was i i think awkward might be the right word for it Hmm. uh and and sort of trying to find trying to find my place uh trying to figure out uh who i was and again i think in retrospect being very lucky that there was a large enough group of kids who valued those kinds of attributes that I I was not lonely in any way, shape, or form in the way that I think 
you know, many people we know might have been like the only kid in their high school who had those kinds of interests. They they were it was not the least bit unusual to have the kinds of interests that I did. Uh, you know, I can think off the top of my head of a half dozen um, kids from my high school graduating class who are professors now. Oh, huh. Huh. So you swam. You're not a good swimmer, but you swam for college. Yes. Uh, so I got a, this is another stroke of luck. I'd say I'm, I'm not real smart, but I'm real lucky. I'm uh, not, not also not a very good athlete, but I'm real lucky. So um, the, the legendary now retired uh, head coach after 40 years of, of Princeton swimming, uh, Rob Orr, who was uh, head coach from, from uh, starting in 1979. Uh, his view of it was if you were willing to put in, you know, the, the 30 ish hours a week of intense, uh, training to be on a division one swim team, then, then you deserve to be on it. And so oh. despite, despite a lack of, of particular swimming talent, uh, you know, I got to be on there and that I think uh, had a huge impact on my life. Many of my closest friends are people who I was on the swim team with who, who were actually talented yeah. athletes in addition to being, to being really good students. Um, but it absolutely changed the, the trajectory of my life in a really meaningful way. And so, you know, Rob Orr is one of um, one of th three people that I think of outside of my family who who I think of as having had just enormous influence on on the direction of my life. Huh. Um, that's cool. Uh, it's like a Ted Lasso kind of character. Uh, it, it after a, in a manner of speaking, actually, I think there's one of my favorite descriptions of him in in a, um, a write up in a swimming magazine was uh, something like a part part mad scientist, part absent minded professor. Uh, but just uh, just an all around uh, amazing guy who who led through uh, just sheer force of of charisma and, um, you know, established a um, an ethos that that carries forward to this day with with the phenomenal uh, new coach who's who's there now. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot a lot of people, uh, their first touch with economics is like where it really started to mat, where it really had really kind of grabbed them. It was either a, a book, a class or a professor. And, um, you know, it doesn't always happen in the same, you know, at the same time. So I was just kind of curious, you know, do you remember when you first sort of had a positive in thing with economics where it sort of grabbed your heart a little bit. Cause I know you and I are really similar in that. At least I think <clears throat> you and I both really love economics. So <clears throat> this is, this is an embarrassing story, but since it's just me and you here, um, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell it. So um, in, in it, it builds a bit and it gets a little bit better, but in ninth grade in New Jersey, there is a, a, a state requirement, or at least there was many years ago uh, for a careers class. And so again, this is, you know, kind of pre-internet. So you've got the occupational outlook handbook and you had to, you had to pick a profession and write about it. And I'm just flipping through this thing and I get to the ease and I'm like, Oh, economist, this sounds kind of interesting. Uh, <laughs> so I may be the only person uh, in this in the history of the state of New Jersey's careers requirement who actually found their career in the occupational outlook handbook. Uh, but what what I did find interesting, you know, I, I found it interesting. And then, you know, I, I just started paying more attention. My my um, parents are both avid readers of the New York Times. So that's something, you know, I, I'd read every day. And you just sort of start to pick up. Um, uh, this is back when the New York Times was quite a bit more even handed uh, than, than it is today. But the um, you sort of pick stuff up, and and I actually ended up writing at least one college essay about the the what what 
Justin Wolfers's book refers to Justin Wolfers and Betsy Stevens book refers to as the interdependence effect, which was, uh, you know, how in the 1973 oil embargo, um, the sales of hamburgers plummeted. So you're like, okay, well, why? So what's going on there? Well, gasoline got really expensive, and especially in the 70s, you know, people would drive to the to the to the drive-through or the drive-in um, to get burgers. And um, I I said to myself, this that's so interesting that these things that appear to be completely unrelated um, are, actually are related. And, and I just thought those kinds of patterns were so fascinating. And mm. so I am one of those, um, one of those weirdos who kind of knew what they wanted to do when they were 15. And, mm. and having my father as an example, you know, I, I thought that academic lifestyle was, was really, uh, appealing. And I just, what I love about our job is you, you get to find the answers to the questions you want to know the answers to. Right. Uh, so this is sort of funny because I, I, when I, I talk to a lot of undergraduates about, about career goals and I, I sort of uh, advise them away from kind of the, the bullheaded way I went into things, which was, you know, well, when I was 15 or 16, I decided that this is what I was going to do. And I never really considered anything else and mm. it worked out great for me, but there's some survivorship bias involved in, in telling that story a little too firmly to, to students. So I kind of, Tell them to go, go try some other stuff and figure out whether this is really what you want to do. Wait, so what age is this for you? So this is like high school where you read that occupation manual or is it college? Yeah, so that was ninth grade. Uh, that was ninth grade. You and knew then, you uh, wanted to be an economist yeah. in the ninth grade? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that weird? That's the first guest on the show that they've said that. <laughs> well, so and then my my um, you know, my parents really value education, um, as you can imagine. And so the, the summer before my senior year of high school, I took some summer classes at Yale and, and one of them was an intro stats class. And one of them was a, was a principles of micro class. And oh. uh, I, in retrospect, now that I teach principles of micro to about 3000 students a year, it was not taught very well. Uh -huh. um, it does, it does give me the opportunity to tell my students that, you know, I tried to brute force memorize my way through, you know, the shutdown condition for firms. And it just, you just don't really learn it that way. Right. Um, but, but despite that, I still found, I still found it just so fascinating. So I went into college knowing exactly what I wanted to do. That's and, amazing. Uh, uh, really didn't look right, right or left. Again, not it's, this isn't, this isn't a, like, this isn't a good story, right? This isn't, this isn't a praiseworthy story. Uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's good to explore and figure out, sure. uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> but it is an argument for, you know, uh, not waste, you know, when you, when you know, when you feel you know something, getting there, getting there earlier, it's not. Seems like there's a lot of value in it. I mean, you know, part of the part of what I feel like is the the problem with our field is um, there's so many non-econ prereqs that you have to have that you sort of are at a disadvantage if you catch it too late. You know, uh, I think that's you probably true. must have known immediately. I got to basically double major in math borderline become a blue collar mathematician i think that's true and again you know like i said i i talked to a lot of students um and and that's one of the that's one of the things that that um i find troubling is that you know if you don't catch them when they're freshmen or sophomores it's it's almost it's almost too late for them to go not necessarily straight into a phd which again not advisable but but kind of go be competitive for a PhD program without adding more school. Yeah. Why do you, why, why do you, why would you tell somebody don't go straight into a PhD program? Isn't that what you did? It, it is. And it was a terrible idea. Um, uh -huh. it, it's, you know, it, the, the point of, of 
being young is to figure out what you want to do. And okay, if you're convinced and you know for sure what you're getting into, but there's obviously huge information asymmetries here and and, and a lot of lack of, of clarity about what this entails. And, you know, a lot of times you've probably had this conversation, you talk to a student, they seem really eager. And of course, they're smart. Um, mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, well, you know, I just I, I really want to teach. And I'm like, OK, so you have no idea what this profession actually is. <laughs> uh, just let's have a conversation about that. But right. the, the opportunity cost yeah. of, of five or six years, and obviously, if, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to waste and I'm making making air quotes here for for the people uh, listening, um, you know, five or six years then you you'd better be damn sure this is what you want to do even if yeah. an econ phd is kind of the 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 best uh roll of the dice on that but you know yeah. the, the kids kids don't they 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 are so unaware of how many things there are out there and i have had i'm thinking of one student in particular um just off the charts um smart hard working um and and seemed destined for for a phd and then um uh, derailed is the wrong word. She she just tried something different and discovered that she's really good at this other stuff and and um, is on now a, a different, incredibly successful pathway. And frankly, you know, in some ways, I look at that. I'm like, you know, good that 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 she figured out that she wanted to do some something else um, rather than doing what I did, which is kind of be be pigheaded about the whole thing and say, well, this is this is what I decided I was going to do when I was 15. So this is what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so what are you good at, John, that that you could That's, imagine? I, I feel attacked by that question, Scott. <laughs> what are you good at that you could imagine uh, that you could have done some other stuff that would have made you happy? Um, honestly, I, I don't I don't really know because I I love this job. Um yeah. and not not all of it, um, and not always, but there's um it's hard for me to imagine that I would have been happier doing something else. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd like to think that I'm, I'm, I'm more of a generalist, and so I think that I'd be decent at adapting to other things. But there's, there's not. It's not like I'm pining to have been a surgeon or something like that. Uh, and there are certainly things that I wish I was good at. Uh, right? You know, uh, in, 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 you know, in addition to being at least moderately okay at this particular, at this particular job. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're reading this. You're, you're in the ninth grade. You, you like uh you know you want to become an economist you're at this school where they're sending kids to top schools and you end up being one you end up at princeton i was wondering you know who at princeton what were the authors and professors that had the most impact on you when you were at princeton well so harvey rosen without a doubt who who is um still a good friend of mine and um, we talk frequently even though he is he is uh now retired um, and and was a frequent co-author of mine for uh, 15 years. So um, the way I got to know Harvey was um, Princeton has these freshman seminars with really prominent uh, faculty, a really small, you know, 10 to 15 students. So you might take up poetry with Toni Morrison or um, Robert Fagels, who's the sort of the, the, the translator, you know, the, the the most prominent translator of the Iliad and the Odyssey, 15 students on Homer. And Harvey taught a seminar on taxation. Uh, wow. and, and I said, well, that's, that seems, that seems interesting. Uh, and, and so that's how I, that's how I got to know him. Uh -huh. um, and then I connected with him, um, the summer after my freshman year, I just sort of asked around, um, does anyone need a research assistant? And at that point I actually got connected with Bert Malkiel 
and I did some um, did some RA work for for Bert for a few years and and um, kind of on the side and helped him out with Wall Street Journal op eds, just sort of fact checking stuff like that. And mm-hmm. then um, after my freshman after my freshman year, I started working with Harvey, and that's we started working on a paper with actually with with Doug Miller, who at the time was a PhD student at at Princeton. So you know, again, I was an undergrad, Doug was a PhD student. So this is all many years ago, uh, and we worked on a paper. Um, using the panel study of income dynamics and looking at the relationship between um, health and wealth. Um, mm. and, and this is sort of, a, um, you know, we can we can start to dive into the weeds here, but this is sort of a, a more of an old style IV paper where, you know, you kind of... Um, you kind of glance at your at your IV and you say, yeah, that's 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 good enough. And uh, you know, you build a story around it and then and then run your regressions. Um, so very different style than than the way that things things are done today. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I took um I took uh second semester econometrics with Orly Ashenfelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I took a class, and I've I've actually had the opportunity to tell Hank Farber this, that I took a phenomenal class from him, which was sort of a third semester econometrics class that was, you know, an applied econometrics class of the sort. That that kind of opens your eyes to hey here are the kinds of problems you can solve with these tools that you've been learning kind of abstractly right um, and and I don't know that I can point to anything specific from that class but that definitely I think solidified my desire to um uh to really do that kind of work um and and you know at the same time I was taking classes in other things I took a, a macro seminar with with Michael Woodford who's um, with whom I, I, under whose supervision I wrote a second thesis. Uh, mm. And I took a game theory class with Dilip Brew. And in doing so, I learned that I am neither good at nor want to do macro or game theory, but that's, you know, that's how you learn. These were upper level classes or were these graduate classes? These were up, these were just upper level oh. classes, though. Later, what I would, when I got to grad school, I would actually find that um, they were essentially light versions of a first okay. year, you know, macro seminar, or in, in Dilip Bruce's case, a second year field game theory class. But mm. similarly, you know, uh, Avinash Dixit taught um, intermediate micro the year I took it. Wow. And I used my notes from that class to review stuff for micro theory in grad school. So it was, it was taught at extremely high level. You were taking classes from real legends. Did you know that when you were there? Not really. You know, you oh. kind of have you kind of have a sense when, you know, someone is is prominent. But, you know, especially, again, narcissism of the everyone's just kind of old. Right. And some people <laughs> are old and they have their name on a book. And so that must mean that they're they're reasonably famous. You have you you, you don't really have a great sense of of who these people are and how they fit into, yeah. uh, you know, into the pantheon of things. Right. 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 Well, so who writes you a letter for, uh, you know, for grad school? So Harvey, yeah. uh, Mike Woodford, and Bert Malkiel were my were my uh, letter writers for for uh, for grad school. But um, you know, and and there was it was sort of a, a, a I was less aware of having to do all the heavy duty math. I had, I had done quite a bit of it, but um, uh, you know, college is, is a transition. Some of my, especially my early math grades, weren't necessarily all that great. And I think this mm-hmm. is again one of those places where this the signal really matters um in terms of of coming out of a place like Princeton with you know some of the grades that were on my transcript I think you know you you come out of a of a different place with that and nobody really looks at you again mm. so uh like I said better lucky than good you know so I've I've been really really fortunate to um 
end up where I am, I think, through through um, opportunities that 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 I then went after, you know, and, and yeah. kind of being at the right place at the right time, I think, is my elite skill. Mm, mm, that's a good skill, making taking advantage of luck. Uh, so so you you end up at Stanford where you you must have been super, super pumped. Yeah. Yeah, I was, you know, it's, uh, it was sunny. Um, and, uh -huh. and, uh, uh, though it was not, especially then was not really a place set up for the kind of, of work that I wanted to do. Uh -huh. Um, and, um, and at the time it was, it was in a bit of disarray in terms of, of, people transitioning in and out and, and, um, you know, sort of some, some in, intra departmental issues that, you know, you're not really aware of as a grad student, but you can kind of tell that that stuff isn't quite right. Um, mm. and so, you know, I, I, I kind of limped through a good part of, of my Stanford experience, but it, it, all, it all turns out great for me. Wait, so what did you want to do? You were wanting to get, uh, you want to do something like public finance? Um, well, so that was actually, you know, I thought that I was going to come in and do a lot of this. Um, I, I, I knew I didn't particularly want to do the health stuff that I had done the first two papers that I'd done with Harvey, which which were done by the time of, those those were my senior thesis, uh -huh. um, those two papers. Uh, and then um, I thought I wanted to do kind of, you know, more classic uh, tax type public finance. Um, and then this is, again, one of these one of these lucky opportunities so harvey had had been in the um george w bush administration um on the council of economic advisors and when he came back to princeton um you know he was casting around for for uh new projects and, and stuff like that and um was approached by the development staff of let's call it anonymous university uh and they said hey we have this amazing these amazing data on um alumni giving but we don't really know what to do with it you know we don't really know how to analyze it etc would you be interested in in helping us out with that and so he calls me up and says hey do you want to do you want to do this and I, at the time you're I a phd help. student at stanford I'm a PhD student at Stanford and, and uh, Harvey's back at his at his uh, role at Princeton. And so um, real quick, a, are you so are you sort of at before that phone call kind of being routed into, you know, like a different field or a different research interest? Or is this kind of like consistent? I, 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 I was fairly that. directionless um, uh, at, that, okay. at that time. I didn't I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do and, and how I wanted to do it. Um, and <clears throat> I don't know that I had a particular interest in charitable giving, but we mm. had these amazing data. And, and uh, the first thing that we tackled, other than, you know, the, the sort of the report that Anonymous University wanted, was um, looking at the relationship between um, the age and application status of alumni children and their donations and trying to kind of quantify these impure motivations for giving. And what, and what does that mean? Wait, okay. The what child? What was that? The the age and application status of of alumni children. So if you have a 15 year old who we know in the data will be applying to anonymous university in three yeah. years, um, how does your pattern of giving change relative to someone who is observationally very similar, but doesn't have a child or is observationally oh, very similar, it. but whose child does not eventually apply? Oh. And, and then what happens if the child is accepted or rejected? What happens if the child bribes? These are these are like these are bribes. Well, so that's the interesting thing because because it's 
So first of all, you know, if if you're writing a check and putting it in an envelope, then you're probably not giving enough to to move the needle anyway. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, you know, as opposed to getting into your jet and and flying for for the for the naming ceremony, right. but there's there is certainly no explicit promise of anything like this and and this is entirely what we refer to as expected reciprocity so uh. sort of like uh like uh, um you know this is like i i'm gonna do something nice for you and you know maybe you'll do something nice for me despite the fact that at, at this university there the um the it's just not the way these these things really work, you know. And I know that people are skeptical about that, but but I can assure you that the admissions office doesn't know that you gave a thousand dollars this year instead of a hundred dollars. Um, it just it just it's just not how it functions. And yet this pattern is incredibly consistent in the data, and mm -hmm. we sort of used it to quantify how much you might think of as as um a more impure mercenary expected reciprocity motivation for giving. And that, that mm. kicked off a, a, a number of papers, including my job market paper using, using those data because they're mm. just such, such a rich data set to examine, you know, not, not questions, not marketing questions, right? Not questions of like, well, how do you extract the most money, but questions about human behavior. So my job yeah. market paper ended up being, you know, uh, what what's the impact of social pressure and charitable giving, you know, mm. using as good as random assignment of roommates to this university. And then, you know, two decades later, your freshman year roommate to whom you were randomly assigned with whom you may or may not have a positive social relationship, but you were essentially randomly assigned to this person. Um, now they're a solicitor. So mm -hmm. how does your giving vary, uh, including within, you know, within your giving history? So within an individual fixed effects approach. Um, and and so how much of, of these motivations to giving are driven by, you know, maybe external factors? And I just Bayesian updated when you said randomized roommate, and I'm sort of uh, now limited it to anonymous university to smaller set. Okay, well, fair, fair enough. Um, I, I don't know that it's that big of a mystery, but but I have never let it slip. It's it's just anonymous university. Got it. Um, got it. And so, and similarly, you know, looking at is it um, a panel? Are you following these families? Yes. Yes. Um, so, it's, what it's happens a, if the kids don't get in? So, the, in? this is this is um, giving drops to the level of someone who um, uh, has no child at all, which is the what I what I called the uh, the I have no son um result uh and and so you might say well why doesn't it drop even below that level um and the answer is we were looking at at eldest children um because that that was oh, yeah. for whom the data was richest if we looked at youngest children for whom we we had a much smaller data set of college age youngest children um it did in fact drop below below that level so there was you know maybe some uh some updating on on how likely this was mm -hmm. to work or 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 what but but certainly it was it was just this huge plummeting but it also dropped for 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 people whose kids did get in and a lot of it shifted to uh, more directed giving so if your child was on the debate team then you know you you were maybe more likely to give to the debate team rather than uh to um to the unrestricted fund right right yeah it seems like um if it's bribery, even if it's not real bribery, it, it's the impure motive. It seems like it's got to drop if they don't get in. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, it didn't work, yeah. and you know, you didn't you didn't keep up your end of the deal, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Yeah.
Huh? What about people that are in the control group? Do they, so, do they just, they're obviously not getting, you know, the, the childless families or whatever, what happens to them at that same point in the, like in that, in that hazard model, what's going on with them? Well, so we're using them as, as just a baseline group, right? So they're, they're essentially picking up our age effects and, and our life cycle effects and stuff like that. And so everything that we did was relative to a control group of people without children. But do they see like at that same age, like their own gradual secular decline in giving? Is so that's, like a, that's a great question. Wor- is it know? like they are getting worse than the comparison group? Um, so that's a really good question. And you know what? We never actually plotted them out, just plotted it in the data. We always just had them as the, you know, kind of the, the zeroed out, the zeroed out group. But in a, in a different paper, a much later paper, we looked at uh, end of life giving mm. um, and, and uh, um, you know, what, how people's giving patterns change towards towards the end of their lives. And that that one, you know, really more was was more of a um, descriptive paper, just trying to look at this idea of of what happens towards the end of people's lives. And so mm. you know, we scraped the um, the uh, alumni magazine for obituaries to try to see where, you know, was this a, like what was the cause of death, stuff like that. Uh, and, and looking to see, you know, these declines in people's people's giving as they approach as they approach death. But again, you don't you don't know what's driving it. Is it precautionary savings? Is it is it um you know bequest motivation for other bequests? Is it, you know, what? But it but just documenting that I think sometimes mm. sometimes interesting. And you know, I think that the profession is maybe coming back from this a little bit, but there is certainly um uh a pretty long era where the causality police, you know, would sort of turn up their nose at at the very idea of just documenting interesting patterns um and the question is do you need a phd in economics to document those interesting patterns and perhaps you don't but sometimes you know there's just facts not in evidence so i have a a fairly recent paper with my former phd student ben priday where um we look at the relationship between income wealth and giving which is something you'd think would be fairly well documented and yet you know it tends to be um uh tends to be uh, all just you know here are the numbers without any effort to adjust for age or or other things and then in particular to look at the effects of income and wealth both jointly and separately uh, and to try to think about you know what does it mean to say that people with a higher level of income give more you know do they give more out of their out of their um uh, as a percent of their income or what and then you know there's this this common trope of of you know well it's low income people who give the highest percent of their income which is true if all you're doing is looking at the data but it it turns out that a lot of those um a lot of those are older people who have fairly high wealth and low mm. income um, and, oh. um, there's, there's a lot of, it's a lot of outliers. So, you know, you, and some of those may just be data errors where someone reported, you know, a thousand dollars in income and they gave $50,000 in charitable giving. Well, that one observation, you know, in, in the PSID is, is by itself. I think in one case we documented that, that it, it, it almost doubled that, um, Vintile's, average uh percent giving you know and similarly you find things like people with negative wealth tend to tend to be um more generous than 
people uh, at the median wealth level. Well, mm. who has negative wealth? Very often it's young professionals, you know, doctors and lawyers who have a lot of debt, right. but who have very high lifetime levels of income. And so I think this is one of those cases where if, if you know, you're, you're just a data monkey and, and you're, you know, you make pretty graphs and then you come up with some just so story about how look at this this is this is all about these incredibly poor people who are so generous the people with very low levels of income and negative levels of wealth you know well that may be true but you know you, one should dig a little bit more deeply into the data and i think you know when we turn up our nose at, at descriptive papers we kind of we kind of seed that ground to um, policy advocates and and people who are maybe less well equipped to think deeply about these kinds of questions. Yeah. Hey, you know, I had this really interesting interview yesterday with David Card, and I was asking him, um, I was asking him, you know, well, what was it like in the, you know, in grad school? I had heard him comment that there was like an empirical crisis in labor in the seventies, and he said a lot of interesting stuff and I kind of wanted to get your reaction to it. He, he said that in empirical papers, nobody believed the results. The empirical papers were presented for the methods, but nobody really believed the results. And, and I was curious, like to what, you know, how, if you hear something like that now, do you, how do you think that, describes at all how you feel about the empirical work that you sort of see around you? Would you say like you have that level of skepticism? Like I don't believe the results because the way you were describing it so deep in the data, I just was curious how, you know, how do you think it's different for you compared to the way he described that? Well, so, you know, I, I'd say I take, empirical results seriously but not literally mm. um you know and and i think that everything we do is context specific right and so you know even if you've got data for the entire united states you have you know the the lehd or whatever and you say ah here's the elasticity of uh whatever with respect to whatever you know well does that apply during covid Maybe not, right? You know, mm -hmm. does it apply in 2030 when GPT-7 is, you know, folding our laundry for it? And maybe not, right? right. So, you know, do, do we learn something about the world? I think we generally do. Um, you know, I, I, I'd i say um, it, it's just to say that, well, obviously the number is, you know, negative 0.17 and now it's chiseled in stone. I mean, I, I don't, does, does anyone think that I don't know but but we learned something and and one thing that actually does bother me um I think in 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 the literature and this is you know more in in some in some literatures than others is is a kind of this law of one paper you right. know and, and there's this chase for novelty and and you can couple this especially when it's a politically fraught topic with um you know counterintuitive claims especially if they, they tend, tend to flatter one um set of policy preferences over another it's like okay well we had this one paper and it was published and and it was published in a top journal and therefore now we're done. Right. right. And and that to me, that's that's not science. Yeah. Um and and I'm not even talking about replications, which you know that's that's its own its own separate crisis, um, mm -hmm. or extensions or things like that. It's just, well, you know, here's a paper from 2011. And it's very similar to your paper. And so therefore, why do we think your paper is worth publishing? Well, it's a different context. It's been 10 years. It's, you know, and I'm, you know, it, it's it's a 
different identification strategy and a different approach. And um, I'm not saying novelty should have zero weight on it, but I think it, it certainly has, in my view, too much weight. And so, you know, it's, there is this, there is this chase for, um, here's this, here's this kind of very surprising finding. And I think very often what we found is that those, those, those don't always replicate. Um, but I do think, you know, nothing is externally valid a hundred percent, right? No one is giving us the, the, the deep primitives. And if you want, you know, to channel your, your inner Hayek, um, you know, well, th those things can change also, right? The, the, the problem is not gathering all the information. It's that the information may change and the preferences right. may change and the way people behave may change. Totally. Totally. And, and so, you know, again, like I mean, COVID was a great example, right? There were all mm -hmm. sorts of things where, you know, if you had sort of blindly tried to apply whatever consensus numbers from, you know, 30 years of labor research to what was going on during the COVID crisis, you would you would have just been wrong yeah. because this thing was different. That doesn't right. mean we know nothing, right? But right. we should just, we just need some more humility, you know? And mm -hmm. I think uh, Greg Mankiw wrote a phenomenal piece. I want to say it was a national affairs, but I might be wrong about that. This is, this is a long time ago. And it was just, it was just a call for humility. And it was a call for humility in macro, which really does need a lot more humility. But I think that we, we need more humility in, um, uh, in our applied micro fields where, where stuff should be built off of a preponderance of the evidence, not right. uh, here's the one paper that upends 30 years of, of education economics. You know, it's, it's really more, um, we're, we're, we're learning stuff and we learn it right. incrementally. Right, 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 right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about the scarcity of the, the journals or something where, you know, there's some sort of filtering decisions that get made at the journal level where, I mean, that's where it seems like it happens. It's, it's everybody looks for novelty because otherwise they're not going to get into the QJE. And, and when we say, you know, what's of general interest, right? Well, what does that really mean general interest it's 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 really what is interesting to the editors of the top journals and mm -hmm. i don't get me wrong i'm not i don't these these are not bad people and there's no conspiracy to keep certain things out which you know i think is something that people always leap to but yeah. it is i do think and this is obviously not a novel point for me that that we have way too much hierarchy in journal rankings in uh in economics um when there's so much noise and the you know the the difficulty of publishing a paper in a top journal is extremely high um that the the percent accepted is is ludicrously low which means there's a ton of noise in the process mm -hmm. and and yet you what you would think what that would mean is that um there'd be more respect for papers published in um you know non top five journals. And yet it seems like the obsession with the top five has gotten worse over the last 20 years, um, to, to a, a degree that is, that is kind of absurd. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So you get to A&M, what year is that? Like 2009. Oh, nine. Okay. And so I was curious, you know, what was your, what was your tenure experience like going up for going up and those, those years leading up to it? How'd you navigate that? 
so again, I, I was very lucky in my tenure experience was, was I think, um, fairly unusual compared to most people. So I came, so when I took seven years to finish at, at Stanford, and that was mostly because I really like biking, um, in, in the sunshine in California. Now the, the downside to this was I delayed for long enough that I ended up, um, going out in the 0809 crisis, which was, which ah. was not a happy experience though, you know, ending up at A&M, I think it's hard for me to imagine that my, um, career would have gone better. And more importantly, that I would have been happier if I had ended up somewhere else. Mm. But I got here, I want to say with, with eight or nine papers of which like five were already published um, oh, in, wow. in, pretty, in pretty decent journals. And so I was, you went on the market with all that. Yeah. You so were published remember, I mean, I got started, Stanford? I got started when I was 19 years old with, Harvard. Oh, right. So, right. And so uh, not because I, not because I was super smart or like left ahead. I just got, again, like incredibly lucky that someone like Harvey took me under his wing and treated yeah. me seriously. And, you know, we co-authored papers instead of, you know, me just being, being the, the RA. Um, right. And, and, you know, and I did write those, those papers were my senior thesis. And so, um, and then I wrote, I wrote a, a vocational education paper in grad school, just because it was something I found really interesting. And then mm -hmm. I got into the the charitable giving stuff, at which point I had, I think, three or four charitable giving papers, four, I think, charitable giving papers um, already in, in, the, in the hopper by that point. Um, and so it seems like you figured out the research, your own research production function a lot sooner than the than like anyone I've ever heard of then I think I got again this was because I started so early I think I paid that fixed cost when I was like a sophomore and junior in college yeah. rather than as a third or fourth year PhD student because mm -hmm. all of that hidden curriculum stuff shout out to another great podcast uh you know all of that stuff that we don't know about doing research you know, all those dumb mistakes we make, you know, that that I can now tell, you know, students the story of um, how I thought it was a good idea to just, you know, just just keep saving the file, right? You don't you don't do things and do files, you just, you know, you just save replace. Um, big mistake, right? And so all of those things that you learn, it's way better to learn them when you're when you're 19 or 20 than when you're, you know, when you're a, a third or fourth year PhD student. And so I, I think that's right. You know, I think I, I had that those ideas about the craft of research. And again, with someone like Harvey guiding me, um, the craft of research down in, in a really meaningful way um, before I got to grad school. And so I was able to be really productive. And then I got here and I was very um, well supported by by my senior colleagues. And this is a place, you know, that really valued um, uh, supporting junior people. And so, you know, I kind of felt like I knew I knew it was it was pretty much in the bag, which which gave me the freedom to do things like start an undergraduate research program when I was a second year assistant professor, which is mm -hmm. again like the sort of thing that you would normally grab someone by the lapels and shake them and tell them this is this is a terrible use of your time. But it was something I really wanted to do and uh and gave me the opportunity to to you know mentor and 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 guide undergrads and kind of work on on that aspect of of what I enjoy doing. Yeah. So what do you think when you compare yourself to a counterfactual, which, you know, there's plenty of counterfactuals. You just see so many, you, you know, assistant professors, what, what do you think your production function was that made it work so well? Like if you had to just summarize it, you know, like this is my production function. This is how I'm able to take inputs and turn them into outputs. And this is why it, it happens so consistently. What was it that you had aside from prior pubs? So I, I'd say 
at, at the risk of being a little bit, I think I have an extremely high marginal product of labor, but it also declines really quickly. And so I think that what being aware of that means that I would work really intensely for a few hours a day and, and make really good progress and then just say, okay, I'm, now I'm going to do something else, whether that's biking or, you know, or working on a different project or just sitting around thinking um, or, you know, watching TV. Uh, but whatever it was, I, I, I kept myself from getting worn out. I think, and and by by keeping that balance, I was able to move forward quickly on a lot of different projects rather than saying, well, I'm just gonna keep beating my head against the wall on this thing, which of course is not to say that there aren't, you know, a half dozen projects that got really far along that never ended up going anywhere. And sometimes that still makes me really sad, mm-hmm. but it, it, it um just that approach of, you know, let me get really into this thing for as long as I'm feeling like I'm making good progress. And then I'm just going to step away from it because once, you know, once that MPL has fallen to a, a pretty low level, there's, there's just not much point in continuing today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. 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 So this charitable giving, I mean, you pivot at some point or at least diversify because you start writing about these uh, traditional labor policy questions like the minimum wage. And so I'm curious, you know, a lot of people, well, I don't know if this is true, but this is true for me. You know, you couldn't pay me to write uh, a minimum wage paper because, you know, I'm, I'm too sensitive of a, of a man. I get my feelings hurt. And it seems like, you know, there's this quote from season two of Ted Lasso where uh, there's a fake Brene Brown new fake Brene Brown book. It's called uh, Enter the Arena, but Bring a Knife. (laughs) (laughs) And I was thinking about that with the minimum wage literature. It seems like it's, it's, uh, you have to have pretty thick skin and yet you sort of jumped right into it. I was just wondering for the sake of the reader, listener, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your decision? What was it that you spotted early on that said, I want to go into it? And how come you, did you bring a knife? Well, that, so I think I think that the answer is it was it was lack of knowledge that that's what it was like, and so so the way we got into this, uh, Jeremy West, who's um, our former PhD student who's at UC Santa Cruz, um, he and I, this was right at the time of the Affordable Care Act, and I was looking at all mm-hmm. the mandates that the Affordable Care Act was uh, was putting forth, um, employer mandates, and I said, look, these these have to these have to have some effect, right? I mean, right. They're, they're costly. And so, you know, that's part of compensation that that shifts the, the mix. Um, and so I said, you know, Jeremy, let's let's see, you know, let's collect all of these state level mandates and and uh, and see what we can find in terms of in terms of um, uh, effects on the labor market. And so it turns out we found what everyone else finds, which is that they're just, it's just kind of mushy. There's just mm-hmm. not a whole lot there. It's pretty noisy. And Jeremy comes to me and says, um, you know, uh, I just, th- I threw in the minimum wage as a control variable. Cause it seemed like, you know, it was the sort of thing that would make sense. And it's like, it's always negative and statistically significant on everything I do. And he's like, and I always thought, you know, Carden Kruger. And so yeah, me too. I always, you know, that's, law of one paper right and so um and Mm. so i said we so we dove into this having no idea that this was such a fraught uh discussion and then 
again, better lucky than good. Our paper came out right around the time in about 2013 that the minimum wage became a politically hot topic again. And so that's right when our paper hit. And, and we, again, kind of surfed this wave of, of the new, new minimum wage literature where, where we were one of the first movers on it. Um, so I had no idea that it was going to be like this. And in many ways, I had thought naively that, you know, the someone who mostly works on charitable giving and someone, Jeremy, mostly works on sort of, you know, environmental uh, and and uh, uh, IO type stuff like, well, you know, we're not we're not one of these, you know, warriors in this holy war. Uh, and so, you know, people will treat us with kindness and respect, uh, which was in retrospect, a ludicrous idea in academia. <laughs> Um, but, but that's so, so the answer is I had no idea that it was going to be like that. Yeah. You brought a pen. You brought a pen. Yeah. Yeah. I, brought, pen I foolishly paper. brought a pen and some regression <laughs> tables. <laughs> uh, but you've kept working on it. How many papers on the minimum wage have you written so far? Um, like four or five, four or five, something like that. And again, I, you know, there's, there's, there, when I'm interested in in aspects of it, so so Jeff Clemens, Lisa Khan, and I wrote a couple of papers because we were really interested in this idea of substitution to, um, you know, maybe higher skilled labor, more educated, more experienced labor. It seemed like the sort of thing. It, it like the minimum wage has to have effects somewhere, right? It's mm -hmm. it's not a ma it can't be a magical transfer of of uh, you know. Unless what you're doing is is you're on the whiteboard drawing the perfect monopsony, uh, you know, with perfect perfect wage just well actually with perfect wage discrimination you don't even get this you don't even get this result but but you know it, it's it's just this this idea that that it's not it, that it's not going to have an effect somewhere well you know it doesn't necessarily have to have an effect especially in the short run on mm -hmm. employment right it could it could be hours of work which you know is what the Seattle minimum wage project found it could be you know uh, um, shifting towards more skilled labor it could be changes in the um, in the uh, the expectations of productivity from workers, you know, this goes all the way back to this paper that you and I have discussed in the past from 1915, written by these two women who worked for the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, you know, it, it could be uh, changes in non-wage compensation, which is the other paper right. that that Lisa, Jeff, and I worked on. And so, you know, there's, it, it's unfortunate that it's become such a politicized uh, thing, but mm -hmm. it's it's uh, and and I don't necessarily have a huge interest in writing, you know, yet another minimum wage paper. I have no interest in cranking these these things out every two years or so. But mm -hmm. but when there's an aspect of it that's interesting, like a paper I wrote with uh, our former PhD student Carly Will Sloan and former undergrad Camilla Adams, who's now at um, at Brown as a PhD student, was was on search effort, right? Because that was that's something that was. Um, uh, in in a paper by by Chris Flynn and a separate paper by Jordan Smoglu was this idea that you know the minimum wage might get people off the sidelines and they might search harder and uh, that might create better um, better matches which creates more um, you know uh, more surplus and and then you know with that additional surplus the um, the uh, employer doesn't feel the need to to cut labor, right? And so those are theory papers, and and those two guys are about a million times smarter than I am. But that is an empirically testable hypothesis, right? And yeah, so that's yeah. what we did. We used the American Time Use Survey, so it's kind of like a sliver of of this of this uh, topic. But it was something that I just found interesting, and I kind of wanted again, kind of wanted to know the answer to. So mm. off I went and got hey. to work with you know two great young people, which is which is really one of my favorite things to do because you're a social person. Yeah. That's yeah. a part of your production function. You enjoy being around people. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The work takes a long time. 
doing it alone is is would be would be hard it's hard for anybody but uh i i wonder if you also are a happy economist you seem like a happy economist if because you part of your production function is you you figure out how to throw these 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 cocktail parties but for papers i you know i think that's i think that's definitely part of it um i also you know, i really enjoy talking to other people about their work and so there's mm -hmm. just sometimes it just pops in my head oh i haven't talked to so and so in a while yeah. I wonder what they're up to, you know, right. and then just hearing about cool stuff that they're that they're working on. It's just really, really enjoyable. Um, you know, there's just so many amazingly smart people in the profession. And very often, I mean, the, the phrase I use is, is I find it recreationally interesting. You know, it might just be a topic that I don't work on, have no plans to work on, but I just, it's just interesting. I just want to know more about it. And, you know, I mean, uh, not to take away anything from the people who who live in their silos and they find the topic that they work on so interesting that they're not compelled by anything else that's totally fine you know uh, yeah teach his own but but uh but for me you know there's just stuff all over the place that i find super interesting even if right. i have no intention of ever working on that topic right 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 well it's top of the hour i wanted to kind of conclude a little bit you know you you've you're such a you know thoughtful person and social and you've observed a lot I wonder if there's anything that you think is like maybe not hidden curriculum, but like missing information that the, the grad, that the, the new junior faculty or the, the kind of the, the, the sort of deep in the deep in the PhD program uh, student that maybe you think really does have a very high marginal benefit for them. And they just really, for whatever reason, need somebody to to tell them what it is. Is is there anything that you think really has a very high marginal benefit in terms of like whatever you think whatever you think the goals should be or are? Well, I think that this probably won't surprise you, but I think it's it's talking to people, uh, and and this is such a point of emphasis for me when I talk to my my young PhD students um, is that you know no, nobody nobody goes into a cave and emerges you know two years later with a perfect paper and mm -hmm. it's so easy to get blinders on about about your topic and and the last thing you want is to be standing in a seminar for the first time and have someone point out something like really obviously flawed but even beyond that even just you know just getting that kind of feedback is is this is this is how ideas germinate, right? And this is right. how ideas expand. And someone might say, you know, that's fine. But hey, did you ever think about like, what if you applied it in this other way? And you're like, oh my God, that's like a million times more interesting. But mm. I had gotten so focused on the thing that was right in front of me, uh, you know, that that I didn't even notice that the interesting thing about this would be would be something else. But again, that that's often that's often someone else's opinion, right? And the yeah, thing yeah. That someone else finds interesting might not be the thing that you want to work on, and that's okay. But you'll never know if if all you do is is um, you know sort of put your head down and work on your stuff. So just talk to people. If you're mm -hmm. a PhD student, talk to your peers. If if your faculty talk, talk to talk to PhD students, talk to other faculty at other places, talk to senior, especially talk to senior faculty, make sure that you have at least one person, preferably more in your department who you can go to with questions or better yet, someone outside, someone senior outside of your department. And I do, I try yeah. to be this person for a lot of people because yeah. sometimes you don't want to ask that question in your department. You're like, Hey, I got asked to do this thing, but like, you know, I want to be a team player, but this sounds like a huge pain in the ass. So like, is this good for me or not? And I think every junior faculty needs someone outside of their department that they can ask that question to. And very often it's their advisor, 
right? Yeah. They're, they're their old advisor. But but you know, to not um to not be able to say, hey, is this a good thing for my career? Because you you often have no idea when you're when you're a young faculty member because you know you don't know that um five years from now, people will be like, oh, you know what? They like they edited a handbook chapter. That's a pretty big deal. Or like, you know, man, that guy just spent all his time on like BS service that, you know, didn't. Well, that wasn't that their fault because no one ever told them, hey, you're allowed to say, I actually just had this conversation with someone the other day. If you're taking on a big piece of service, you're allowed to say no to everything else, you know, mm-hmm. and that's a really important thing to know. And and this was a, this was actually a, a, a recently tenured person. And mm. they didn't know that they were allowed to kind of turn down other stuff if they were being handed this really big piece of service. Right, right. Well, it's so good to see you as always. I love when we hang out. And, uh, uh, COVID sucked because we and you didn't get to hang out in person. But I hope this, I hope we can get to see each other again soon in person. Sure. Pretty soon over drinks, I hope. Yep, deal. All right. Good to All see right. you, buddy. Bye-bye. Take care, Scott. Gotta see us soon.